Hey everybody, I'm Maggie. And I'm Amber. And this is Crime Country. Today we're in Mississippi. Am I SSISS something? I-P-P-I. Mississippi is the 32nd largest state and the 34th most populous of the 50 states, with about 3 million people. That surprises me. I don't know. I thought there was more people there for some reason. I just don't do well with, like, big numbers. Like, Yeah, 3 million just seems really small, I guess. I don't know. know. That's, like, the same as Utah, and I don't know why I think there's more people in the south than in Utah. Hmm. Man, and I thought that Utah was really populated until I moved to San Antonio, and then there's, like, so many, like, a lot more than the amount of people in Utah. Yeah, Texas is huge and has some of the most populated cities cities in the entire country. But, uh, anyways, the Mississippi Delta region is considered the birthplace of blues music, and the entire state sometimes is referred to as the birthplace of music, which I'm pretty sure music was around a lot longer than the United States. So we'll call it the birthplace of blues. (laughs) It's a Southern state that was a key player in the Civil War, uh, fighting for the side that lost. (laughs) Many areas of Mississippi have huge mansions that were formerly the homes of slave slave owners and a bunch of old cotton plantations and stuff like that. Mississippi is named for the Mississippi River, which comes from the word the Native American word meaning great waters or father of waters. So I guess anybody who doesn't live in the United States, the Mississippi River runs north to south through kind of the middle of the country. It's a really, really big river in a lot of parts. It's a huge shipping channel for uh, a lot of products and stuff in the early time of the US and probably still now, I'm sure. Yeah, probably. If you visit Mississippi, you could visit the Gulf of Mexico. It does butt up to Mexico. Well, the Gulf of Mexico. Um, you could visit old Civil War battlegrounds uh, or many, many museums. Mississippi has an eclectic music scene with many music venues and music festival festivals. Or, of course, uh, you could see the Mississippi River that runs along the entire western border of, border of the state and is surrounded by lush greenery and beautiful views. Some of the cities are right on the river because that's where the industry came from in the area. And they're so pretty. Like seeing images of these towns that are right on this huge river with just like so much greenery because it's so wet. Oh yeah, all the time. And it's never super cold there. So it's always like kind of a temperate uh, temperature. Seems not bad. (laughs) I didn't realize that Mississippi was like on the border, but it's very far south. I just realized that. Yeah, I don't think it actually butts up to Mexico. It just has a small section at the bottom that's the Gulf of Mexico. So it goes to the ocean, but it doesn't touch Mexico actually. Yeah. I didn't either, but I'm really bad at geography when it comes to the south. (laughs) (laughs) So some weird laws in Mississippi include, it is illegal to teach others what polygamy is. Oh. You can't even tell people what it is. It's not okay. Well. Ain't um, happening here, sir. Um, A man may not seduce a woman by lying to her and claiming that he will marry her. How do they know that they're doing that? Uh, I mean, I think it's an after-the-fact thing, but uh, (laughs) after he seduced her and she's like, he said he'd marry me, Pa. And Pa's like, not on my watch. 
Uh, <laughs> oh god. Sorry, everyone in Mississippi. Um, if one person is a parent to two illegitimate children, they can go to jail for at least one month. Oh, yikes. Sex in public is illegal. Men cannot be aroused in public. And oh. unnatural intercourse, specifically with both parties voluntarily participating, can result in 10 years in prison and a $10,000 fine. So both parties agree, but it's unnatural? Unnatural intercourse. So I think, I didn't see the history of this law, but I think it probably started in real, real racist times. And it was with, like a black man and a white woman uh. or vice versa. But I bet now it pertains pretty heavily to the gay community. Yeah. And that being considered quote unquote unnatural intercourse. It's a bullshit law. Mississippi, try and get that one off the books because. No kidding. It's 2020. We're better than get this. Get it out. Do better, be better. Yeah. <laughs> um, get it together, Mississippi. And lastly, it is illegal in Mississippi to sell cat meat. Cat meat? Yeah. Jeez Louise, please don't sell your cat cats. Like, don't butcher your cats. Don't they're kill not your food. Cats. It's they're just they're not meat there. No. Like, ew. Yeah. <laughs> so that's Mississippi. We will tell you some crime stories from the state. All right, so I'm starting us off in Mississippi this week, and I'm going to be telling the story of Nellie Jackson. It's a super interesting story, and I'd never heard of Nellie Jackson before. I don't think I've ever heard of Nellie Jackson before either. So Nellie Jackson was a black woman born in 1902 in southern Mississippi. Taking us back. Way back to a real racist place with a black woman. So not only is she black, she's a woman. So she doesn't get a lot of options uh, in 1902 that, in Mississippi. two strikes. Yeah. It's oh. a rough life for a black woman in 1902 in Mississippi. So she grew up in Possum Corner, which is a small town in Mississippi. But when she was around 18 years old, she walked 28 miles to the town of Natchez, Mississippi. So Natchez is a town right on the Mississippi River. And the people from Natchez call it a river town, and they basically say that river towns have always been kind of lawless places. There's gambling, whiskey, prostitution, you name it, they got it. River towns have all sorts of travelers coming and going up the river, and they want to show them a good time and take their money when they end up in their town. Mm -hmm. So it's always been a super liberal town, which is interesting. And even during Prohibition, Natchez was a whiskey town. So the residents or business owners would still serve whiskey, drink whiskey, have alcohol, and they just paid this extra tax to do so. And like the government tried to hike up that tax to make it undesirable, and they just paid it anyways because it was worth so much in these river towns. So right through Prohibition, we're still gambling, <laughs> drinking, Sex working, all, all the things. Working. So, all the things. All the things. So, uh, Nellie moved to Natchez. I'm probably butchering that a little bit. Natchez. It's N A T C H E Z. 
Natchez. Natchez? That sounds right to me. I know. I watched a documentary and they said it a bunch of times, so hopefully I'm saying it okay. So Nellie moved to Natchez, hoping to find a better future for herself. In the early 1900s, 1900s, it wasn't easy to find work for a young Black woman, and all the jobs available to her didn't pay shit. Um, She could be a washmaid or a servant or a sharecropper's wife, but none of these were really good options for living a comfortable life. Like these jobs all just kept you in poverty, struggling to get by. So she made the trek to Natchez hoping for to find more opportunities for herself. When she got there, she ended up in a section of Natchez called Under the Hill. Um, and Under the Hill was this poor area full of brothels and bars, drunks, gamblers, sex workers. Um, it was it was a scary place to be, but being a sex worker was the only job that Nellie could find where she could actually make a decent living. And once she got started in that arena, she realized she had a knack for it. Like she got how that game could be played and she could profit and live a better life than she could literally doing any other job. I mean, if it works, it works, I guess. Yeah, and I mean, at that point in time... That wasn't, like, out of the norm. Yeah, and for a Black woman to actually be able to make a living doing anything is insane. So I guess do what you gotta do. Um, And Under the Hill, the area that she was started out in, was super scary. Like, people would go missing there all the time. People would get in bar fights or, you know, drunk men would kill sex workers and nobody batted an eye. It was a very dangerous place to be a sex worker, especially a Black woman in... 1918 or 1920 yeah. so um she got started she had a real knack for it she was actually making money and she started saving that money so within a few years of moving to Natchez she had enough money saved to buy herself a house so she bought this house on Rankin Street in an upper middle class neighborhood in Natchez and she was no longer living under the hill um which I really am curious about, like, what the neighbors thought. Just her coming to the new neighborhood? Buying a like, house in their neighborhood. Yeah, like, like, who's this lady? What is she doing? Like, yeah. what? In the 1920s, a young Black woman buying herself a house in an upper middle class neighborhood. That's insane. Yeah, that's amazing. Yeah, so I don't know um, how people initially responded to that, but it worked out for her. So over the next few years, she continued her sex work but now she was away from the dangers of being under the hill in the bad part of town and she also started building building up a clientele so she like people knew who she was and they she had regulars and like well-known men around town and other nearby communities would come and visit Nellie frequently like they they liked her um it's such a weird concept to me to like be in that line of work and just have regulars and just like, hey, what's up? Yeah. Like, and apparently she was a real professional. So if she was like walking down weird. the street of town and she passed someone that she recognized, she would not acknowledge them. Because, you know, you don't want the prostitute to be saying, oh, hey, good Yeah, to in you. public. Yeah, so she would just pretend she didn't know you unless you approached her first. If you saw her out on the town and you wanted her to talk to you, you had to go up to her. Because she was pretending she didn't know everybody. So she'd um, like, stay in business. That's one way to do it. It's I think, a good way to do it. 
Yeah. But um, slowly Nellie starts renting out rooms to other ladies in this house that she bought. And by 1930, Nellie was a well-known brothel owner in Natchez, oh. Mississippi. So everybody called the place Nellie's um, and everybody knew it. Everybody knew what was happening in Nellie's house. No one really cared. There were other brothels around, even in her neighborhood and around town. Um, but hers was really well known because she was a black lady running her own brothel and like everybody fucking loved her. Brothel is such a weird word. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Like brothel? I don't know. Yeah, I don't. It's such a weird, it just comes off weird. Like when I hear brothel, I don't think of like prostitutes and. <laughs> well, that's because no one wants to call it like the sex house. <laughs> Yeah, I and guess. Whorehouse is very, very. Yeah, frowned upon. Not. You know. uh, yeah, <laughs> not socially acceptable term anymore. <laughs> so she ran a brothel. Um, she, uh, yeah, so she started running out rooms to women in her house so they could run their own business. Well, her business out of her house. Uh, she had all types of girls working at her house, but she would only let white men come to her establishment so in this day and age she she knew she was flying under the radar she knew everybody was okay with what she was doing but if she had let black men come into her establishment to sleep with the women and she had white women working there people would lose their minds so if a black man was sleeping with a white woman like oh, she'd yeah. be done for so she she had this firm line at the time I only serve white men. She had black girls, white girls, Asian girls. She had like all types of girls working at her house. And, um, but she only ever served white men for that reason to keep herself <laughs> off everyone's radar, basically. I guess you gotta do what you gotta do. Yeah. And in that time in Mississippi. Business decision, man. Uh, yeah. Um, so she, she kept doing business. And it was going great. Everybody knew Nellie. Everybody knew where she lived. Her address was like a known thing. People in the area just like grew up knowing like, oh, you don't go there. That's Nellie's <laughs> house. Or like, you do in some areas, I guess. But, uh, you do or you don't. Yeah. One or the other. <laughs> <laughs> and every Christmas she would go around town and she would go see the mayor, the police chief, the sheriff, and she'd bring them all this big bottle of whiskey. And be like Merry Christmas and they'd be like hey yeah we're not gonna shut you down this year don't worry about it and she'd be like oh, thanks you're good for one more year sweet we'll see what you bring me next year yeah and they all kind of loved her like I watched this documentary and it interviewed a bunch of people that were like mayor at some point during her run and um or like sheriff and one of the sheriffs they interviewed was like she didn't get any special treatment. That's ridiculous. We just never had cause to arrest her, but she didn't get special treatment. Blah, blah, blah. And all the other people were like, yeah, she totally got special treatment. We all loved her. We weren't going to shut her down. She wasn't doing anything wrong. Like it's a liberal town. We think sex work should be legal for the most part. People are going to do it. If it's legal, it's safer. Like, yeah, just let it happen. But, um, so it was really interesting. She had a really good relationship with all these people around town. And, uh, she would get new girls in. So she would have girls come work for her. And there were some that rented rooms from her and stayed there full time. They just lived at her house and rented out a room and did their job out of her house. But then there were some girls who would just come on 
weekends, like they only worked weekends. They'd come from another town and they would come stay the weekend at Nellie's house and get jobs or whatever. And then there were some girls who would come like literally when their husbands were out of town or if their husband was in the army and their husband would deploy, that's how they would make extra money to survive while their husband was gone. Yikes. Yeah. It's not weird. That's, that's rough, man. Yeah. Gross. Um, but whenever she got new girls, like regular girls in her brothel, she would go around town to the big department stores to get them some nice clothes and like also to show them off. So she'd go to like the three biggest department stores in town so people could see her new girls and know what was uh, available, I guess. So, that's so weird. Yeah. Um, but I mean, that's how you gotta do your business. Like, I don't know, man. Yeah. I mean, I. I agree that sex work should be legal because it would be a much safer profession and it's not going anywhere. It's been around literally since the beginning of time. Yeah. No, people are going to do it regardless, Yeah, whether it's legal or illegal, like it is happening. And they're still human beings. So they deserve protection. And if it's legal, they're actually going to get some protection. But that's one of the things with what we do with crime podcasts and you hear about serial killers and so many of them target sex workers and no one gives a fuck. And it's like, yeah, they're no one still... gives a shit about them. Exactly. And they're still human beings. Like it's so sad. They're mostly like young girls who literally had to do it to survive. Like, they wouldn't be able to put food on the table if they weren't selling themselves. And that's terrible. That shouldn't happen in our society. But they're still human beings. Or they're drug addicts. And we need a whole new system set up to help drug addicts instead of just sticking them in prison. Um, so that's Yeah, my... there's a lot of things that need to be revamped. But... But... Um, no, that'll never happen. People are people. If this is what they choose to do, they should be allowed to do it with certain guidelines. <laughs> um so Nellie charged the girls half of whatever they made from the men um plus ten dollars a day rent ten dollars a day rent that's not bad yeah I'm not sure what year this is or I would have adjusted it for inflation because she ran her brothel for a really long time so I don't know this is a number I got in her story, but I don't know if this is when she first started. I don't know if this was in the 30s or the 40s um, or the 50s or the 60s or the 70s or the 80s. So So it could be a really good deal or maybe not such a great deal. So she would tell them $10 a day rent plus half of whatever they charged their johns. So if they were getting $50 for being with a dude, 25 of it went in Nellie's pocket. That's a pretty good profit for her. Yeah, but she gave him a place to be. She offered him a little bit of, like, protection because she was so respected in the area. And so they... Yeah, I guess they probably felt safe there. Yeah, they had a place to be. They had a steady clientele. Like, people respected her, so they respected her establishment and stuff. So I guess it was worth it for some of these women. Um, I mean, if I was in their predicament sex working, I would much rather be at, like, a safe brothel than hooking down the street with a trucker you know like that's asking for a murder well especially because it's a small town and Nellie kind of knows everybody so you know nothing too crazy is gonna happen and when Nellie talked about what she did for a living she said she ran a boarding house and she rented out the rooms to these girls but she didn't tell them what they could or could not do in those rooms so that's kind of how she got around doing what she did 
She's like, oh yeah, I just rent rooms out. It's fine. And she always paid her taxes, so they couldn't get her on tax evasion. She'd go to the tax accountant, tell him she was running a boarding house and how much money she made, and she'd pay her taxes. And so she was above board on that side of the law. And so she got away doing what she did. As long as you pay them damn taxes. Yep. That's all that matters. <laughs> uh, and Nellie also allegedly kept a black book of all the men who came and went from her bo- brothel. And since she had people in like high positions in the town and surrounding communities, um, no one really wanted to piss her off and risk that book getting out there. So everybody kind of just let her do her thing. She wasn't hurting anybody. She wasn't causing turf wars or anything crazy. So Nellie kept on keeping on. And she also loved her community. So she did more and more for the community the older she got. She would make food for the local orphanage. Um, It was home for abused children. And she would bring them donations. Like she would just leave donations on the doorstep all the time. She would leave them toys. She would leave them food. She gave them turkeys every Thanksgiving. She gave a lot of money to her church. She helped all of her neighbors if their house was like falling into dis- uh, disrepair and needed some work and they couldn't afford it. She would lend them the money. She would help them fix up their houses. She was a pillar of a community. Like she really was just this sweet black lady. If you came to her house and you were hungry, she was feeding you. She had this big kitchen. She was constantly feeding the men that were coming and going from her establishment. But even like <laughs> women would come. The mayor's wife was like friends with her. Um they she was just like super nice. Everybody loved her. She <laughs> was super generous with all the money that she was making from what she did. It was just her job and she was a generous person. So she had an income and she spent a lot of that income helping other people. Um and everyone just started to consider Nellie's as like a quirky little part of their community. And they all loved her. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, like, Nellie's. Nellie's is the place. Oh, yeah. Like, we should drive by Nellie's and see what's going on and see if there are a bunch of people there. What, like, that was a thing people would do. Uh, and like, she, Nellie's Friday night dinner? Yes. <laughs> um, and she kept going for years and years and years. Hmm. So during the civil rights era, um, Natchez, the town, became a huge hotbed for KKK activity. And in response to that, there was a lot of protests from the Black community in the area because it was very conflicting. So this was in like the 60s. Most of the people in these peaceful protests against the KKK were Black teenagers because, you know, grownups have to go to work and stuff. So it was like one of the guys said that the youngest arrest record he saw was for a seven-year-old. Seven-year-old? A seven-year-old. So they would go to these protests and arrest all the people that were there, no matter their age. So there was like a seven-year-old. Um, there was like nine, 10, 11, 12, 13-year-olds like peacefully protesting just because they didn't want to be like murdered by white people. Um, and they get arrested? Like what do they even do with them? Lock them up and make them pay... And none of them had enough money to like really get bailed out. So they would just have to sit there until their court hearing. And then they have That's a record. So sad and ridiculous. Like what the hell? And it's sad. This shit's still happening. What yeah. year is it? Where are we? Anyways. Um, Nellie used her influence to help get these kids released. She would pay some of their bails. She would call up someone she knew that was high enough up the ladder and be like, hey, you need to let these kids go. And they would. 
they either respected her or was afraid of her releasing their name to the public as one of their her patrons. Oh yeah, they're like, hey, I need a favor. You better. Yeah, like I'll tell everybody you come to my place all the time and sleep with black ladies or whatever you know. And she would get these kids released. So she did a lot for that community as well. Um, so in a bit of a side story, an article I came across while I was researching this on like how the KKK was affecting the area and just being fucking terrible like they are. So in 1964, like they are, you know, you not know, were terrible, not were because they're still a thing, but the fuck? that that amazes me that they're still a thing. Like it's insane. I do not understand how the U.S. is still so, like, segregated. Yeah, and racist. It's fucking ridiculous. We're all people. People are people. Just be nice. I I don't even like people that much, but I'm nice to them. Like, just, I hate everyone equally. Yeah, people fucking suck, (laughs) but that doesn't mean that you need to be a dick. Yeah, and it's such a... respect whoever. Respect all the people. Like, you're no better than anybody else. You're probably worse, if we're being honest. Like, come on. I just don't understand. And so it just blows my mind how we always go into these things where, like, I don't know. I just, like, I know it exists, but part of me is just like, Jesus, like, geez Louise. Like, Yeah, no, like, this story I'm telling, this was the 1960s. This was 60 years ago. And it's like, oh, thank God that's in the past. Oh, wait. But is it? The last four years have proven very, very differently that it is not. Like, I just don't understand. And I just think it's crazy that there's still this stigma in people like the color of your skin matters or this or these people are less fortunate because of their skin color or vice versa. Like, whatever. Like, it's so fucking stupid. Like, every single person should have the same... Opportunity as the other. Our system's not set up to fix it because these like poor black communities have been so pushed aside and they're not getting what they need. So kids have to drop out of school to help support their family. But then their schools are super underfunded, so they're not getting good teachers. So they're not even getting started off on the same foot as everybody else because their parents can't get job because they don't have a high school education. And then they're born into this situation where their parents can't keep a good job. And then there's like forced into being drug rampant areas because they can't afford to live a decent life. And then they don't even get started off on the same foot. So how could they ever catch up in a lot of these like poverty driven communities? I'm not saying that it's just black communities. It's just a systematic problem where the rich stay rich and the poor get poorer. And it doesn't have to be that way. And it's set up for failure, basically. Yeah, it's a really sick situation. And it's like a never-ending, like, terrible cycle. It would literally take, like, an entire reboot of our government. Like, a teardown and start over to fix all the problems. And that's not going to happen without, like, civil war. I don't know. Because there's so many people that are just like, okay, I'm over this. Like, people are people. Like, we're on the same level playing field come on now but then you still have those people with these things in the back of their brains like oh no you're wrong yeah and I'm better than you like okay get off your high horse like fucking be a decent person and come on 
Yeah, and everybody has their prejudices, and I, you really just have to take a hard look at yourself to try and do better and be better. Yeah, every single person in this world needs to do better. Exactly. And be better and think about your freaking actions. It's a weird and- political thing, too. Like, Republicans have their one thing that they are Republican for, and they think that Democrats just want to take that away. So it's like, oh, they will take my guns. And it's like, no, just be kind of reasonable. Like, admit that mental health help in our country could help with the mass shooting problem that we have and no other country in the world has. Um, Yeah, hello. I'm a gun owner. I like guns. We hunt. We are gun people. But I can admit that we need to do something so I don't have to be scared sending my kids to a public school that they might not come home one day. Yeah, no, that's freaking terrifying. We shouldn't have to do active shooter drills at work. You know, our kids shouldn't have to have clear backpacks to make sure they're not going to kill each other. It's insane. No kidding. And <sighs> this got really so note, <laughs> Um, Spoiler alert. My family doesn't listen to our podcast, so I don't think it matters. But <laughs> um, for Christmas, me and Aaron got my niece some pepper spray <laughs> because she's 18 now. And we're like, all right, she should have pepper spray. Like I had pepper spray when I was working. I would have pepper spray because yeah, I was at work at nighttime and it doesn't matter where you are. Like you got Spencer's you just... sister pepper spray when she was like 18, 19, 17, whatever, around that yeah. age. So we we got her pepper spray and I don't know if I should say this on the podcast, but Erin was just like, she better not spray your sister with that or I'm going to be in so much fucking trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like... Yeah, you're pretty right. Like, hopefully she doesn't misuse it. Otherwise, we're both going to be in real big trouble. But she's at that age where pepper spray is appropriate. So she got her some pepper spray. And I didn't include a note, but hopefully she Don't spray your mom. If you want to cut that, you just let me know before I add it. No, it's fine. You can leave it in. It's fine. That's funny. But yeah. That's really funny. Um <laughs> Yeah. I, I still have pepper spray in my keychain because you never know. Me too. I have pepper spray. I have a pocket knife. Um I a- sometimes I have a gun. I don't know. <laughs> Do I have it? Do I not? <laughs> you don't want to find out. Yeah, exactly. Don't attack me. I, I mean I'm not yeah. as worried about it. Like when I was a cute 18 to 22 year old I've been followed around the grocery store to my car like I have been followed in my car I have had men be horrible creeps men that are way way too old to even be like looking at me have been awful it hasn't happened as much since I've gotten a little older and like gained some weight and I'm not as like cute and young as innocent and like but it's scared to nothing that that's a thing exactly and I don't know if it's because I'm not so like timid that I look away when I notice someone being a creep and I just give them the stink I know so maybe like yeah now you're just like uh you looking at me bro yeah like <laughs> but before you're like oh god that guy's looking at me yeah well because we're taught to be polite to people yeah and nice exactly and stay quiet and feminine and you know like you're just a sweet girl sweet. smile yeah. um, no don't even look at me bro otherwise yeah because now I'm like yeah you got a problem bitch <laughs> You, you, you want to look at me? I'll you fuck you up, bro. <laughs> like, I'm pretty sure you don't want to follow me. 
you don't want to come to my home. You don't want to do anything because, yeah, no, you don't want to do it. Well, and they, <laughs> even like two years ago after I had my first baby, I had some guy following me in the car. And so I was like getting groceries and I got to my car and I put the baby in the car and then I shut the door and I was loading the groceries in the trunk. And he drove past me while I was lo- loading the groceries in the trunk and he slowed down and rolled down his window and oh. was like staring at me. And I was like, that was weird. So I like shut the trunk and I get in the car and I back out of the stall and he had gone around the aisle and was now behind me. Oh and gosh, he followed me. for you? Yes. And he followed me out of the parking lot across traffic to get into the left turn lane. And I was going home, but I lived pretty near my parents at the time. And so, and he was following me. And That's like, so creepy. Yeah. So I tried getting in the other lane and he just like slowed down. So he never got in front of me so he could stay behind me to like see where I was going. And so I just called my parents and was like, hey, like I'm coming to your house. I have the baby and some dudes following me. Um, And thankfully. That's the f- sad. Yeah. But it's like, what do you do? Like. Uh, no, so I had to call the cops from someone following me before too. Like it's fucking weird. But I mean, it was a long time ago. It was like when I was back in high school. I had some car following me. Me and you had somebody follow us on our break from work. Oh, yeah, we did. <laughs> Through the parking lot. We just went on a walk on our break at work, and some dude in his car rolled down his window and was following us slowly through the parking lot. Yeah, that was creepy. Yeah. That was real creepy. Okay, so this is the tangent to end all tangents. Do better, be better, people. Yeah. <laughs> One time, uh, back to, like, the whole racist issue. So I live in Utah, obviously, and my family so we're like i said hunt and stuff and they have gun shows like twice a year where you go and there's like people selling guns or like porcelain dolls and food and gun accessories like, literally, a lot of cool stuff there's clothes <laughs> there's purses there's no those gun shows are the best i miss them yeah they're fun and then there's like a bunch of ammo and guns but there's also like handmade leather and all kinds of fun stuff yeah so they're fun to go to and so I didn't go this time with the rest of my family and they all went and there was a dude in full Ku Klux Klan robes walking around the gun show in the light of day full robe pointy hat 2020 no it was six years ago it was during Obama's presidency but still geez louise yeah yeah in this day and age like in that's how brazen people feel about still being just openly racist and awful. People need Jesus. <laughs> I'll spit out my wine. <laughs> and I'm not even like super religious, but geez Louise, people need to find Jesus. I think he's a big part of the problem with a lot of these people. So I don't know about that. People need to just be better people. People use religion as an excuse to hate other people. That is true. People yeah. do use religion as a crutch. To yeah, exactly. They hide behind their people. religion as a shield. And, it's and I don't I don't think, I do not agree with that at all. Yeah. But in like a broad sense, yeah, they need Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> hey, Jesus, Jesus come fix. Anyways, we've been on a soapbox for a minute now. I'll get back to my story. So I'm about to tell a side story about how bad this area was at the time. So in 1964, a man named Joseph Edwards went missing. Joseph Edwards was a black man who was working at the Shamrock Hotel in Vidalia, Mississippi, which is very, very near Natchez, Mississippi. Um, They're like neighboring towns. And Joseph would sometimes work with or for Nellie Jackson in some capacity. So Nellie, uh, 
so he worked at this hotel and if there was someone staying at the hotel who acted interested in finding a sex worker while they were there joseph would reach out to nelly and be like hey i need a girl and then he'd find a girl that matched what the person wanted and bring them to the hotel so he worked with nelly in that regard where he would help her get clients kind of um and vice versa so uh at this point in time in 1964, there was this lady who was a sex worker who was staying at the Shamrock Hotel with her husband and her young son. Um, and her husband was working directly with Joseph to basically pimp out his wife. Oh. Yeah. So Joseph is a black man that's helping this guy find clients for his wife to sleep with. And the lady is white. Her husband's white. Her kid's white. So... um. The woodsman's husband went somewhere and she was meeting with Joseph about finding or meeting up with some of these clients, getting some information from him. And her son drowned in the hotel's pool and died. And so she like, they tried to save him or whatever, but it was too late. But while they were on their way to the hospital, she told the police about what she'd been doing at the time. Like she was totally honest with them. Like, Hey, I was talking to this guy. He's um, helping me find Johns basically. And word got out around the police station that there was a black man interacting with a white woman regarding a sexual situation they weren't sleeping together but they were talking about sex and and that's not okay oh that's a red flag right there yeah so some (laughs) members of the police force were actually kkk members and when they heard this story they took it into their own hands to fix, I obviously am not using that word, but like myself, um, the situation. And he was, his body was pulled from the river several days later. Oh my gosh. Um, no one was ever prosecuted. Yeah. And no one was ever prosecuted for that crime. The FBI knew the two men who did it, but it never came to cause any charges. They just swept that under the rug. Yeah. No big deal. So that's one example of how big of a problem the KKK was at this time. Um, and just how ridiculous. Like, uh, yeah. Um, so back to Nellie Jackson. Nellie kept her head low. Occasionally, the, a group of, like, super white supremacist KKK people would show up at her house and they'd, like, burn stuff in her yard. But there was never any worse incidents than that that I read about. Like, nothing that actually, like, physically affected her or harmed her home or anything like that. Um, But sometime during this time, she came in contact with some members of the FBI who were trying to break up this huge KKK group that was developing in the area. So somehow Nellie got in contact with someone with the FBI. So her girls would talk to their dates and get information about activities going on in the area. So they would hear about like men in the area who were actively participating in clan rallies or were secretly part of the clan, what they were doing, all sorts of stuff. The girls would then tell Nellie and Nellie would tell the FBI who the men were, what they were doing, what was going on. Um, the FBI agents would come to her house super late at night. They'd come like in her back door, like her private entrance that she used for all her johns. And then they'd have a private conversation with her and she'd give them all this information. So she became an informant for the FBI. Oh. Yeah. So she helped the FBI identify a bunch of these people 
And then they started re- releasing their names publicly in the newspapers. Oh, man. And then these, like, high-up dude, white dudes in Mississippi were, like, real quick to be like, no, 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 no. And then the, the new division of the clan that was starting up in the area kind of fell apart after this. And it's obviously oh. still a thing today, so it didn't completely fall apart. But it put a kibosh on their big operations. Yeah. And Nellie had a good hand in that. So at another point in time, at some point in time, um, one of Nellie's girls had a John in the house and she tried to collect a $2 debt from him, probably for like a drink or something. So Nellie always had like sodas in her kitchen that the guys could buy or like beer they could buy, um, that kind of thing. So it was probably for something like that. And this dude was super, super drunk and he lost his mind and he slit the girl's throat. Holy cow. And she died in Nellie's house. I couldn't find what year that happened in. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure when exactly Over that happened. Over two fucking dollars? Yeah. Like a two dollar thing. And she just was like, hey, you owe us two bucks. And he like lost it and slit her throat. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't owe you shit. <laughs> yeah. And he was very, very heavily intoxicated. So after that oh. happened, Nellie made a strict rule that she wouldn't serve drunk men. Good. She still was selling beer out of her kitchen. So I think she just had like a, if you're obviously intoxicated, we won't service you. Sort of. Yeah. Kind of like the. Cut off at the bars. bars. Yeah. Yeah. But like, you can't have sex with these women. (laughs) So she, she had a really strict rule. If you came and you were acting intoxicated or just seemed too drunk or a little off, she'd be like, sorry, you can't come in. Um, and she was really, really firm on that. She also started carrying a pistol with her, like, at all times. So she always had her pistol nearby. She wanted to defend her girls, make them comfortable. Yeah. And um, she wasn't afraid to show it if someone was getting too aggressive. At one point in time, she even shot somebody because he was, oh, like, wow. trying to attack. I couldn't find any more details on, like, if she killed him or not. I don't think she did. But anyways, so she, she kept her pistol with her. She wouldn't serve drunk people. She kept her business going for 60 years. Holy cow, that's so long. Yeah, so from 1930 to 1990, she was actively running. 1990? 1990. She was running this brothel out of the same house on Rankin Street. That's insane. It's so insane. I want to live in one place for 30 years. That'd be nice. (laughs) You move a lot. Um... (laughs) (laughs) yeah so she's actively doing her thing running her business then in the early morning hours of july 5th 1990 daniel eric uh, a 20 year old white man had been out all night partying it had been the fourth of july the day before so he'd been out at parties and stuff he was working in the area as a busboy for the summer he was home from college trying to work to save up money to go back to college in the fall or whatever. He'd been at a friend's 4th of July party, but he'd gotten a little too drunk and belligerent. And some of the other party goers were like, dude, you need to get out of here. You're being crazy. So he left, but then that party migrated to a bar. Like they were kind of bar hopping and they ran into Daniel again at one of these bars. And he was still pissed that they had like kicked him out of their party. So he was being even more belligerent towards the same group of guys. And again, they were like, dude, just like get out of here. Leave us alone. It's fine. Bye. And so he, Daniel's drunk. He's decided like, 
I need to go try- check out Nellie's. Everybody says such good things oh, about boy. Nellie's. I need to go be with a woman. And so he goes to Nellie's house, like, really early in the morning, like 1, 2 a.m. Oh. Somewhere between 1 and 4 a.m. I don't know the exact time. I don't remember. Freaking smashed at that hour. Yeah. Um. So he goes around to the back door where people were told they should enter. And this door actually opened up right into Nellie's bedroom. So she had, like, this locked screen door in front of it. So she could crack her real door and talk to the person and see if she actually wanted to let them in. And then she had another door that she might send them around to that went straight into the kitchen. Um, But she would crack her her door, talk to them through the screen, and, like, decide if she's going to let them in or not. So Daniel goes to Nellie's and knocks on her door. And 87-year-old Nellie opens up the door and... 87? 87. She's been running this business for 60 years. Jeez Louise, I guess so. Yeah, so uh, she opens the door, he's very obviously drunk, and she's like, nope, sorry, you can't come in, you're drunk. And he's fucking pissed, because he's a white man, he should get what he wants. Um, So, I mean, this is 1990, so it's a little less that, but like also still that. But still. Yeah. Um, He walks two blocks away to a gas station. And he goes inside and buys an ice chest. So, like, I think one of those styrofoam ice chests, you know? Okay. Like a yeah. disposable cooler. Like the ones you take, like, on a day fishing trip or yeah, something. Yeah, like a barbecue if you forgot one. Yeah. Um. So, he, he buys an ice chest. He goes outside and fills it up with gasoline. Oh, jeez. And then he carries the ice chest of gasoline back two blocks to Nellie's house. That's one thing to do with that. Sloshing himself with gasoline the whole way there because you're carrying a container full of liquid. Oh. So, um... a nightmare. Yeah. Then again, he knocks on Nellie's door and she opens it a crack. This time she has her pistol because she's like, you gotta leave, oh, dude. don't shoot him. Well... He'll light the place on fire. She <laughs> didn't. She didn't shoot him. But um, she opens the door. She tells him he needs to leave. And when he sees her with her gun, he gets extra pissed. And he tries throwing the gasoline at her. And then lighting his lighter. And she only had the door cracked, but it still got gasoline on her and inside the house. And he lit his cigarette lighter and it basically just exploded everything. Um, so he's covered in gasoline from walking there with the ice chest full of gasoline. Like, obviously, he was going he to murder her. himself? No, unfortunately. He doesn't? Um, well, he also burns himself. But not enough. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, so, obviously, he was going to murder her or set right. her house on fire. It's not that just because she had a pistol, it pissed him off. He was already there with the gasoline. Yeah, he was already there with a motive, ready to go. What a lunatic. So he basically gets blown across the street when he lights this and it kind of just explodes the gasoline. He gets blown across the street and he starts like running down the street on fire, like a full human torch. And um, then Nellie's house was on fire as well, because obviously... So neighbors heard slash saw this fire and this man running down the street fully engulfed in flame and they called the fire department. I think a cop happened to be driving nearby too. And so he got there pretty quick and he sees this just like man on fire. He like thought it was a stunt person. He's like, they must be filming a movie. Like this is insane. 
But yeah, that's crazy. Like, what? I have no idea what I would do if I just saw a fucking person running down the road on fire. Like, okay, here yeah, we go. Me either. So he, the fire department gets there. They get to Nellie's house, and there's just like girls in lingerie running around the yard, and they're all just yelling, "Miss Nellie's still inside. Miss Nellie's still inside." So the firefighters work on putting out the fire. They load Daniel into an ambulance. They get him uh, put out and they load him into an ambulance and there's no hope of saving him. He died the next day. Oh shit, from his burns? Yeah, he died real quick. It was no hope. Um, So they put out the fire. They go in Nellie's house and they find her on the floor of her bedroom next to one of her white poodles that was dead. Uh. But Nellie was still breathing. So... They load her in an ambulance and they do everything that she they could to try and save her. But she's 87 years old and she had burns over 80% of her body and she died oh a week God. later. Yeah. Um, so she, she loved her little white poodles and one of them, she kept cases of beers under her bed to like put out to sell to people, I guess. But she had this little like narrow walkway in the middle of the cases, because that's where her dogs like to hang out, under her bed. Under the little bed? Yeah, so one Uh of her dogs died, like, at her feet, but the other one was saved because of its little tunnel under her bed, and that's where the firefighters found it, and it was fine because of its little tunnel under her bed, yeah. That's so sad and so cute at the same time. You know. So, it's rumored that she kept her little black book with the details of men coming and going and when they came and go. Uh, And then there's also rumors locally that she would go once a week to have film developed of pictures of what was going on in her house as insurance to keep people off her back. Um, I think that's just a rumor because obviously whoever was developing that film would know for sure. Yeah. So I, I don't think that one's true, but it's a fun little rumor. And I don't even know if the, little black book with all the details is true because no one ever found it after she died. Her granddaughter was interviewed in this documentary I watched and she was like, well, I'm going to answer that one with the same thing my grandma would say when anybody asked her her age. That's classified information. (laughs) Uh, So nobody knows if that little black book's out there, but plenty of well-to-do men in this small town of Natchez are concerned that it could be released at some point in time. Um, As they should be. Yeah. So her legacy lives on as a great part of Natchez's history and what a like really philanthropist she was for what she did. She helped people. She was a good person. She went to church every week. She donated a lot to charity and she did it all anonymously. Like she just did what she knew how to do to make money and live a good life and be a good person. So, I mean, you might not agree with what she did, but like, who are we to judge anybody? And yeah, the house that she ran her business out of for 60 years is still there. It's unoccupied. It's in disrepair, but people still like to drive by it and be like, Oh, that's Nellie's. That's crazy. Yeah. That was a really good story. Yeah. Different than what we usually do. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Yeah, I thought that was a fun one. It's interesting because yeah. I, I definitely am more liberal in my beliefs about like sex work and stuff. I, I think it should be legal. It's going to happen either way. Why not make tax money off of it and protect the people doing it in with laws, you know? Yeah. It's going to happen. Like, I mean, it's definitely going to happen one way or another. So I don't know. Yeah. 
it's sad because if there's so many women who are trying to get out of an abusive situation or are addicts that are just trying to make money that get suckered into that life and having better laws about it would make it harder for them to do that and maybe like easier for them to actually get help um it's it's just a weird thing to say i support legal sex work but i do yeah i don't know i just think that it's sad that like so many people have to do it illegally to make a means oh yeah and i i think having laws about it would help change that like it would be less of an easy out for addicts or you know like young girls just trying to get out of an abusive home or stuff like that or people abusive men putting abused women into that situation as well like it would just could curb a lot of those things and it's been proven in places that have legal sex work that it does help with those things so needs to be done right but obviously that ain't happening in this country in most places anytime soon yeah it would definitely take a long time for any changes to happen obviously this has been a real soapbox episode so far well that's okay our feelings on racism and government to us anyway like i think my boss listens sometimes that's fun (laughs) spencer listens he knows my beliefs (laughs) yeah he he hears them he hears all about them i'm sure no we have like 40 listeners that's pretty good i guess it's all right (laughs) Um, we have one Twitter follower still, so. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what are you talking about this week? So, um, I'm going to be talking about Benny Jones Stevens. And basically, this is just like a shitty story that is about kind of broken families, I guess. Not really broken families. That's not a great way to explain it, but like the situation just didn't have to be the way it was and it just happened. Um, my story's going to be much shorter and much less detailed than yours. Yeah. So I'm glad yours was long <laughs> and that we had like tangents. We had um, some tangents. That's for sure. <laughs> because I found like so many good stories this week that I wanted to dive into. And then I spent a lot of my time on one story and then decided against it because it needs more time than I dedicated and so now we're learning about this story and it's pretty like cut and dry but it's just shitty so <laughs> like your story was good because it wasn't just like shitty like there was lots of pluses and good stuff in yeah, your story it was about a survivor a lady who overcame like all obstacles to live a decent life and run her shit she overcame the odds for sure yeah no she she was good so this guy this guy sucks (laughs) but like that's what i'm gonna talking about shitty people so i know what we do yeah so benny joe stevens so he lives in mississippi obviously and We are in Marion County, Mississippi. But my story is a little more recent than yours. I mean, the end of yours is in the 90s. So that's when mine starts, like 98. So um, this guy's just nuts. Like, so he was married to a woman named Glenda. 
And so him and Glenda were married. Um, they had a couple kids. So they had two kids, Angel and Erica. So, and Erica is the one in my story. Angel or Angela is not even in my story. She's just like mentioned. Okay. So they have two kids, two girls together. Um, they're married for a while, but they decide that their marriage is not working. So they end up getting divorced. So Erica is only three years old when they get divorced. And I don't know exactly what year it was. If I spent more time and did the math and like thought about it, I could tell you, but I didn't. So they divorced when Erica was about three years old. And from what I could tell, it was amicable, I guess, as whatever. So they co-parented. They did their thing. Shortly after, Benny Joe Stevens, he remarried to a woman named Lauren in 1993. And um, Glenda also remarried. she had a husband and I think, I don't know if she had another kid with someone else or if they have a kid together, but they had a son. So Glenda and her new husband, they had a son. His name was Dylan. So they were together and they were separated and like plenty of time goes by. They, Benny remarried in 1993 and then in 1996, um, Somehow he got custody of his two girls. He gets custody of Erica and Angela and all is well. There wasn't a lot of details about like what happened before or once he finally got custody. It's crazy he even got custody. Like it's so weird for a dad to get full custody in our system. Yeah, no, it's crazy. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know. There wasn't a lot of details, but I agree that it's just crazy for um, the dad to get custody because it's so hard because they're fighting against so much. And for whatever reason, the system just sways towards the mother. Yeah. Wants to put kids with moms, which is like, which is the best case. (laughs) Yeah. It's not, I mean, there needs to be reason. Like there needs to be backup. There needs to be, proof like is this mother a good fit is a this the person that these kids need to be with yeah like there needs to be more looked into like it shouldn't just be swayed oh, a lady. towards the her. woman yeah it's complete bullshit and i i do not support it i don't agree with it i think it should be equal and whoever like is more fit yeah what's going to be in the best interest of the children yeah exactly um but I don't even want to go down that route. because <laughs> We've been political enough this episode. Yeah, I don't even want to get into it. But get back to the, the trend. system fucking sucks when it comes to children and placing them. And <laughs> the, shit that gets, the shit that gets fucking shoved under the rug, like, it drives me insane. And it's sad and it's terrifying. And I hate it. And there's just way too much of it. And... I mean, I don't know how to fix it. I don't know. We just clean about it to people listening <laughs> to us now. Um, but he yeah. bucks the trend. He got his kids. Yes. So he got his kids. However, it was short-lived. So he got custody of them in 1996. However, the mother regained custody in 1998. So only two years later. Um, 
So I don't know what happened in the midst of that. Cases like that, it's usually something to do with like substance abuse. And once you complete like a program and prove you're clean or whatever, you can get them back. That's probably um, pretty accurate in this case, I would assume, based on, like, other information. Um, I feel like that's a lot of the case when a parent loses custody. Yeah, I could see that, Um, and especially in this case. So, um, Glenda regains custody in 1998, and things are really about to get rough after this. So I don't know when, like what month she gains custody, but within that same year, like there's a complete tornado coming through the town. Um, that is her ex-husband. My, yeah, that's my <laughs> metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> What's his name, BJ? So, huh? What's his name, BJ? Yeah, pretty much Benny Joe. Oh. We can call him BJ. <laughs> BJ. Tornado BJ coming through. Yeah, basically. <laughs> Um, so why did I just go straight to beach? I don't know, but his name was Benny Joe, so like you're not wrong, <laughs> like it's it's feasible, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, so I couldn't find all the details on like the child support and everything, but apparently, like, there was some back child support owed, and so BJ was behind. and. That was that was in the works. So, and at this time in 1998, he was unemployed, and his spouse, um, his new wife Lauren, she was unemployed at that time as well. And so, I don't know how far behind, but apparently, BJ wasn't so far unemployed. Apparently, he was unemployed because of a workers' comp situation Mm -hmm. but I couldn't find the details on that either the only reason why I say that is because the article says that he was waiting on a workers comp payment and so with that payment he was going to pay his back child support and he was going to get all squared away but that doesn't end up happening of course yeah we wouldn't be Uh, talking no I wouldn't if that was what happened. Damn it, BJ. So, yeah. So one night on October 18th of 1998, um, Benny Joe and Lauren, they're at home. And all of a sudden, he's just getting ready. And he has like his guns laid out in a room. And he just grabs a couple of them. And then he he leaves. And his cool. wife stayed there. And I guess his brother was at his house too. I don't know if he was there when he left, but when he comes back later on, his brother is there. And so he leaves. He goes about his business. He goes and does his stuff, whatever he's up to, which is not anything good. Yeah, he took a um, bunch of guns with him. So it's not great. Yeah. No. So he's definitely up to up to no good. So he has these guns with him and what his daughter later calls in like her testimony, his John Wayne belt. So basically, I guess he had like a belt with a bunch of holsters and like ammo, whatever a John Wayne belt, whatever you think a John Wayne belt might be. Yeah, I but, think it just has holsters. 
holsters. Yeah. So, I mean, he did have multiple guns, so makes sense. So he leaves his house, and I actually don't even remember what time of day it is. Um, I think it's like dinner time, so probably late afternoon, early evening. Okay, I was picturing um, like the middle of the night, so I'm glad you said that. Yeah, no. So it's like dinner time because he arrives at his ex-wife's house, Glenda, and so she's there with her husband, um, their daughter, Erica, and then their son, um, Dylan, and he also has a friend over, Heath. Um, so they're all there. They're finishing up dinner on this night, and all of a sudden, they see outside, they see Benny Joe's truck pull up. Thank you, Benny Joe. And they're just like, all right, so... The new husband, Glenda's new husband, Wesley, he goes out. They live in this single wide trailer. He goes out. They have a sliding glass door and he opens a sliding glass door and he's like, hey, Benny Joe, is that you? And then the next thing you hear is like, shit, he shot me. And so he is still like, it's not a fatal shot initially. And so he's just like stunned and he's like shit like this just happened yeah like what do you even think at that point like why are you here benny like hey bj is that you outside oh fuck he shot me what do we do now like exactly what is happening why is this happening he just rolls up and he's just on a mission and so this guy is just opening the door and he's just like hey man like is that you Benny well I I bet it's been a bit of a contemptuous relationship so I bet he's thinking Benny's drunk or something and gonna be like belligerently screaming at the family or something and so he's just trying to meet it head on and be like hey is that you what are you doing you know not expecting to be fucking shot yeah no and I think you're 100% like on the right track because of his workers comp situation um I think he was on like pain meds and he was also drinking alcohol. And so he was in a bad way and he was kind of like struggling. So he was not a hundred percent like clear headed. Yeah. And I'm sure they had some loud interactions before this point. Like I bet oh, yeah. I like, I, I know people who've been through contemptuous divorces, you know, Yeah. Is that the word? No, for sure. So, like, they're just finishing dinner. He opens the sliding glass door. Hey, Benny Joe, is that you? And then just bam, bam. He's like, oh, shit, he shot me. And so at this point, Erica, like, hears this. And then she hears it and she's like, oh, God. So she goes and tries to protect her brother and his friend. And... Apparently, and she's Benny like Joe nine. Yeah, she's pretty young at this point, like <sighs> maybe nine. So, yeah. um, she hears this and she's like, "Oh my gosh, I have to go protect my little brother and his buddy." Like, so she goes and she tries to do that, but Benny Joe apparently like shoots through the wall or something. He didn't know that he was shooting her, but she gets shot. So she he knows his kid is inside this single wide trailer that he's shooting at. Like, Jesus right. fucking Christ. Idiot. Like, come on. So 
he obviously is aware that she's there. And so he shoots and it goes through the wall. Maybe I, I don't know if it went through the wall exactly, but like he apparently didn't know he shot at her. He didn't know. So I bet it did go through the wall. Yeah. Like probably, he's probably not that far away. And I don't think they have super thick walls on yeah. single wide trailers. And also Mississippi's not that cold of a climate. So I don't think they need like super thick insulation. Yeah. That's a real sense. big assumption I'm making, but I just, from those facts, I think he probably went through the bullet, went through the walls. Yeah, exactly. So she gets shot. Thankfully it's not a fatal shot. So, but she gets shot. And then at this point, like, I think this is when she sees her mother and her mother is like, go hide, like get out of here. Run. Don't move. And so she goes and hides in like the bathroom or something. And then well, it's not a big her place. dad. Huh? It's not a big place, I'm sure. No, I mean, it's not a big place at all. Like it's a single wide trailer, like one floor. Like it's literally like, probably like 700 square feet, 800 square feet. Maybe. Yeah, it's. it's it can't be very big. Um, so she hides apparently on her mother's direction. So she hides and she just stays there. And then she just listens to this mayhem going on. And there's a bunch of shots. And then finally, like, it's over with. But she's been shot. So she's, like, I don't know exactly if she, like, when she came out, there wasn't, like, any information like when she came out of the room or if she called the cops or like how she was found or that which I could have completely missed it but like I read this article through a few times and I couldn't find anything yeah I mean it was pretty much before people had cell phones normal people at least because it was yeah 1998 yes she's like eight or nine I think from my math yeah I think that's that's pretty pretty accurate and there's probably neighbors so maybe somebody else called the police yeah so I I honestly don't know because after all this mayhem Benny Joe he kills everybody in the house so he killed yeah the mm -hmm. and so the son he was 11 and then his friend was 10. And so he kills both of them. And he, like, executes them, basically. Oh, my like, God. Point blank. Like, disgusting. For, like, I don't know. He must, he had to have been, something had to have overcome him. Yeah, like, he mentally broke. But still, like, it's hard to fathom Yeah, going to oh. the point where you shoot into the home where your kid is and then go inside and murder your child's parent which is just like I know people who've been divorced and then their ex-partner dies and they did not get along but they mourn that loss so much because their kid lost a parent yeah exactly like Like, it's a whole other ball game for your kids you know like you still care and yeah to go in there and take away your kid's parent, shoot into a home your kid is in, and then brutally execute two children that aren't your own. Like, it's hard to think of mentally breaking that much. Yeah. Because it was obviously planned. Like, 
No, he definitely had like something hardwired into him. And apparently this is all allegedly over child support because like I said, he was supposed to get a workers comp check, but that never came through. So he was banking on that workers comp check to pay his back child support. But then when he realized he wasn't going to get that check, he was like, shit. And that's when he just like was like, oh, man. But there had to have been like more yeah. tumultuous things going on. Yeah. Um, and there was definitely like enough. more like domestic things. There's plenty of people who don't pay their that. child support and don't kill anybody. <laughs> right. There's plenty of people that don't fucking pay child support and they're not killing people. Ugh. Ugh. Um, so Erica, she was shot, like I said, in the back though she wasn't it wasn't a fatal shot but there was five unremovable pellets that were stuck in her shoulder blade oh she has bullets in her shoulder for yeah and she was actually hospitalized for six days recovering from her wounds and like dealing with the fact that her mom's dead and her dad killed her yeah and her brother her stepbrother and his friend and her stepdad yeah, like, the people she cared about. That God, and she was yeah. there. She heard it all. <sighs> yeah. So when they arrive at the scene, there's Wesley's body in the kitchen. So that's this the stepdad. Dylan's body, there, Glenda and Wesley's son um, in the doorway between the hall and the bedroom. And the top of his head was blown off. Glenda was found in the kneeling position in the bedroom. Um, with a, a head wound. So basically he shot her in the back of the head. And then in Heath's body, Heath is the friend of Dylan. His body is covered in blood behind the bed, but they couldn't see his injuries offhand immediately when they got there because of the blood. So there was just blood everywhere, shotgun casings, and this just gruesome, gruesome scene. What God? And Wesley, he had been shot four times um, with two different weapons. So two different guns, two from a shotgun and two from a a large caliber handgun. So I don't know what happened there. I don't know if he ran out of shotgun shells or his shotgun jammed and then he switched. John Wayne belt too. So yeah. So trying to be a cowboy. Ugh. Maybe he thought he was a cowboy. I don't know. But he didn't, he spared no expense at using all of his weapons. Um, but that's so frustrating to even try and understand what could cause yeah. someone to do that. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't understand. <laughs> yeah. I really, I don't. So, so I don't. senseless. Super, super senseless. And so all of these shots are just very cold and calculated and awful. Yeah, he went there to kill. 100%. Yeah, no, like something something broke in him, and that's that was that was his motive. He went there with a mission, and he just was not stopping. And thankfully, his daughter survived, like hid and survived, and he didn't actually see her, like. Maybe he thought she was at a friend's house for dinner. I don't know. Yeah, and I wonder if he'd known she was there, if it would have changed anything. Right? I mean, who knows? I mean, I feel like possibly because... 
but he was very determined and he knew they were at their mom so like yeah maybe he thought they were both sleeping over somewhere and that's why the other daughter wasn't there because she was sleeping over somewhere yeah possibly (sighs) who knows that's crazy yeah so he definitely went there on a mission and he was gonna complete it but thankfully erica survives i mean she obviously still suffered she was recovering for six days in the hospital and the rest of her life and yeah and the rest of her life and she has to testify against her dad she has to do this and good for her like testifying uh, against her dad though no so she she does testify against her dad when it comes down to the trial and so after all this madness freaking bj he goes home and his wife and his brother are at his house and they're just out on the porch just i don't know just hanging out probably just having a beer whatever they do like just chilling on a friday night i don't know and he walks up and his wife lauren is like what what'd you do what what happened and bj goes i just killed a family and his brother hears this and is just like, what? Like, he just, like, is stunned a little bit. And he's yeah. just like, huh? Excuse me? And so the weirdest thing about this is when he gets back home and he straight up says, I just killed a family. Nobody calls the cops immediately. Oh Nobody calls the cops. You know what they do? They call fucking lawyer. And they're like, hey. Uh, this just happened and so then like i think they called one guy and this one guy was like okay well you need like a criminal lawyer so i'm a real estate attorney i can't help you yeah exactly yeah so they're like oh you need a criminal lawyer uh you can go ahead and call this guy and so they call this guy and they're like hey what should we do how does that first guy not call the cops like jesus christ like I don't know because the first guy confidentiality or whatever, but Jesus. Yeah, I don't. I don't know. There's gotta be like a thing there. Like, come the fuck on. Yeah. Um. So that was the weirdest thing to me. Like this lady, her husband comes home and just straight up says, "I just killed a family," and instead of immediately calling the cops, like I don't give a shit. If Aaron came home and was like, "I just killed someone," I'd be like, "What the fuck?" Like, uh, I don't know what you're telling me, but I'm calling the cops. Put it that way, I might call a lawyer first. I don't know, man. I was. I, uh, that's terrible of me, maybe. But like, if Spencer came home and was like, "I just killed somebody," if he was like, "I just killed a family," I'd be like, oh, "Okay, nine one one, hello." But if he was just like, "I just killed somebody," I would think he got well, into guess- some sort of altercation. And I guess we it's need a lawyer. If you think about it that way, and then we will call the cops. But if he literally was like, "I just killed a family," I'd be like, "Oh, me and the girls have to go get some ice cream, uh, bye, and get out and call the cops." But if it was, I guess depending on what he said, like yeah. I might just call a lawyer first, be like, "Hey." I guess when you when you do break it down, but he legit said, "I just killed a family." Yeah, so, no, fuck like, that shit. Call the cops. Yeah, in this case, like no fucking way. Like, um. Excuse me? You just killed a family? Like, huh? And maybe that's not the right move, even if he's like, I just killed somebody. But I, like, know him as a person, you know? It's like, (laughs) 
I would be very surprised and I would think some sort of altercation happened and it was an accident and we would need the best legal representation when we talk to the police. So first instinct for that, I might call the lawyer. But if he killed a family, I would call the police. (laughs) I guess that makes sense when you put it that way. But still, like, yikes. Yeah, yikes. Um, So she calls one lawyer or one attorney and they basically refer her and so then she calls the other one and still at this point like he doesn't go to jail this night like he nothing happens this night I don't think it's till like the next day because they try to go to the lawyer's office and then nobody's there but then I don't remember exactly if they go back home and then the cops show up and the lawyer is in the cop car with the cop (laughs) or if um, he shows up at the office, like after the fact, I don't remember that detail exactly, but um, close enough, like one way. So they, they call the lawyer. He doesn't go to jail this night or whatever. The cops will come get him. It's not till the next day when he attempts to go to the attorney or the lawyer, when he finally gets apprehended and arrested. Jesus. And so like, obviously, it's clear. I mean, he straight up said, I killed a family. So, I mean, there's no, really, no defense. Like, yeah, like okay, <laughs> you killed the family. Uh, you're going to prison now. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, there was really, it was cut and dry. He was like, yeah, this happened. There were these things leading up to it. Like, there was a rocky relationship um there's this custody battle thing that you guys had there's this back child support like the things just kept adding up yeah there's motive yeah so i mean not motive to massacre an entire family no but but, like motive to prove that he did it yeah no exactly 100 percent. so yeah the murders happened on October 18th, 1998, and then he's arrested, I guess, well, it does say he's arrested the same day, but I don't know if that's 100% accurate. My article was weird about specific dates, too. (laughs) Yeah, because of what I read, it doesn't indicate he was necessarily arrested the same day, because like I said, he showed up after dinner, and then it was like he went home, they called these lawyers. So I think maybe that's a little off. Yeah, several hours pl- passed at least. Yeah. But I guess at the time of the murders, he was kind of in a bad way because he was out of work because of his workers comp. So he had been abusing drugs and alcohol. So that kind of filtered in, but still no excuse at all. Um, he was he still was a hundred percent capable and knew what the fuck he was doing. Yeah. Did he try um, and plead insanity? Yeah. No, he I don't even think he he that wasn't even a thing. Mm. Um, but it was just like these are the background, like these things Affected did his... contribute okay. or affect, yeah. But um the insanity thing wasn't even a thing. He he was guilty. He freaking did it. Like, yeah. Yeah. So that was in 98 when he got arrested. And then, so he was convicted of four counts of capital murder. 
um, on December 4th, 1999, and sentenced to death on all four counts. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he was also convicted of aggravated assault and received a 20-year sentence. Good, though. I mean, fuck him. That's crazy and shitty and awful and so sad for Erica and and Shola or Angel and the other kid that just happened to be there and his whole family. His whole family had to suffer through this situation and then this case. Just plead guilty. Don't put anybody through that. Yeah, just reliving all of that, like... Don't why fight it. At like, a trial, you have to like hear details and see pictures and all oh, that kind of stuff. Like, no, thank you. Yeah, no, 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 no. Ugh, that's a terrible, terrible story. Yeah, so it is an awful story. But um, so he was sentenced to death and he was executed. So he was executed by lethal injection on May 10th of 2011. So it took like um, 21 years from when yeah. the crime happened for him to be put to death. Yeah, that's a long time. That's a really long time. A really long time. But it always takes forever. Yeah. Um, Which is good. Like, you want, if anybody innocent happens to be on death row, you want them to have as long as possible to get it right. But it's just crazy. Yeah, but it just when they're sucks. very obviously guilty and they're just like costing. The, yeah, like, it sucks when they're very obviously guilty and all the taxpayers are paying all the tax money to keep these stupid pieces of crap alive. But I do understand why it takes so long because you want to be one hundred percent certain. Yeah, it's better to not put an innocent person to death than to keep guilty people alive. Yes, exactly. And, and to keep. Yeah. His poor daughter. I wonder how she's doing. She's like our age. Yeah, because she was, uh, I think she was like 17 at the time of the trial, I think it said. Um, And so. She's a little bit older. Yeah, she's right around our age, though, I think. So, um, but yeah, I don't understand what happened with this guy. Like, what switched or whatever. But um, I always think this is interesting. So his final meal was four whole catfish fried, hmm. eight hush puppies, huh. French fries, coleslaw, um, hickory smoked barbecue beef ribs that were wet, but they also had sauce on the side, hot peach cobbler, a half of a gallon of blue bell vanilla ice cream, huh. two 20-ounce Cokes, Wow, ketchup, salt, pepper, and a whole red tomato sliced. That's a lot of food to eat before you die. Yeah, I doubt he ate all that, but I'm sure he tried. That's a very southern meal. Yeah, super southern. Some fried catfish, hush puppies. Like, that's all you got to say. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then he did have final words. A lot of them don't have final words. Yeah. Um. But his final words were, I'm sorry. Lord knows I'm sorry. What I've taken from God and you, I can't replace. I'm sorry. Asking the witnesses to read their Bibles. Don't let me be a stumbling block to your salvation. I'm not worth it. That's it. Hmm. At least he admits he's at fault. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's 
one thing so like she's not just like i didn't do this it's not me and not giving like the families that closure but yeah geez that's a really sad story yeah he's a very shitty shitty person and um another thing i did not mention for the murder weapons he actually told um his wife and the attorneys he's like hey this is where they are so he strung one of the weapons in the trees in his backyard and then he also hid one of the guns um near the law office which is weird like he wanted to know where they were in case he happened to get away with it and could go recover them or something i don't i don't don't know because he he hid them at his home and then near the law office maybe he thought he was being smart and he was like oh i'm smart maybe but I don't know. That guy's an idiot, and that really sucks for his daughter that she has to live with that. Both of his and, daughters, even though the other one wasn't there, it still sucks. Yeah, I mean, she still has to live with that, like, the rest of her life. Yeah, and that but, poor little boy's uh, family. Side note, I do not like fish. Catfish is very good. Really? Yeah. Huh. Like I'm not catfish are so gross looking too. They are. They're really fun to catch though. Like they are really fun to catch. Really but fun to catch. Look real gross. But they taste good. They're good. Huh. I don't like fish. I like shellfish, but I don't like fish. But I will eat some catfish. Huh. Like I don't want a bunch of it. But it's really not. It's not super fishy. Especially if it's like fried rice. Spencer's family's from Alabama, so they're southern. And his dad fried us up some catfish that we caught fresh and stuff. And it's mm. pretty good. I, I could eat fish if it's not super fishy. And catfish isn't. It's got a like good flavor. Huh. And they're so gross, but they're so much fun to catch. There's some, yeah, they're real gross looking though. Yeah, there's some good catfish in the lake right by my house. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. All right. So, Mississippi, I think they have way bigger catfish in Mississippi than we do in Utah. They have those, like, Probably. monsters. Have you watched the videos of people noodling, like, four feet long catfish? Yeah, those things are nuts. And they just, like, bite their arms? Yeah, no thanks. Yikes. That's not how I catch catfish. We do it on a fishing pole. They're just, like... Yeah, just little little guys. I mean, they're pretty big. I'm- they're pretty big, but compared to, like, a big old arm Yeah, they're, gator, like, 26 inches long instead of four feet. Yeah, that's crazy, though. I think I may have actually ate catfish one time at a lunch when we went. We went with one of the carriers to lunch at, like, Market Street Grill or whatever. I went when I was 20 and in marketing and we had like a client meeting and we went to Market Street Girl because it was right next to Overstock. Yeah. And um, everybody was like all excited and ordering fish. And I was like, can I get the chicken strips and French fries? <laughs> no, that was totally me when I went to. I was like, um, what? What can I get here? <laughs> yeah. But then the, I can't remember what carrier he was with, but he was sitting right next to me and he was like, just try this like catfish. It doesn't taste fishy. And it was, it was actually really good. It was like fried. And I was like, "Mm, okay, Okay. I I can eat that. That's fine. Anyways, how is sex like a game of bridge? Um, 
But I don't know. If you have a great hand, you don't need a partner. Oh, jeez. Uh, all right everybody thanks for listening we love you guys uh if you have any suggestions for us let us know if you want any more details about what we talked about look at our show notes and we links to our sources i watched a documentary called mississippi madam the tell life and times of nelly jackson or something like that mississippi madam nelly jackson's life or something Definitely Mississippi Madam. I don't remember the second part of the title. <laughs> it's really good. It's linked to the show notes. If you have Amazon Prime, you can watch it for free. Otherwise, you have to pay for it. But it's it's interesting. You can They interview the mayors um, and people that knew her, people that went to her brothel. Ooh, people. I'm going to have to watch that. It's inter- There's only a couple guys, and they have real strong accents. But she definitely was a known member of society. What's, like a pillar. She was a... Yeah. Statute. I can't think of the word I want to use. Anyways, documentary's pretty good. I liked it. Follow us on social media. We love you guys. It's Crime Country Podcast. Listen next week and we'll be in Alabama, I think. Yeah, Alabama. Cool. Alabama. Whoop. Love you guys. Bye. Bye. Bye.